Being a neighbor is not just a term. It's not a geographic term. It's a moral concept. What does that mean when we think about education? What if we really thought that being of a community, not just happenstancely located in the community, was a moral construct about collective responsibility? So what is the responsibility of institutions of higher education for the communities they inhabit? And how do they nurture students as citizens and leaders for the emerging world? These 21st century questions are evolving the traditional ivory tower. I took them up with two visionary college presidents from two very different institutions at a national gathering of educators. Nancy Cantor is chancellor of a large public university in the Northeast, Rutgers University, Newark, one of the most diverse institutions in the U.S. Christopher Howard is the first African-American president of an historically white, all-male school in the South, Hampton-Sydney College of Virginia. It's not that a student thinks it's the right thing, but how can he or she actually be an upstander and try to address it, to be in the world, to, to bring those values of the civilization right there in the dorm room, in the fraternity house, or what have you. And it can be just as powerful as what you're learning in that calculus class or in that political science class. And actually, tell the truth, there's a seamless web when done properly that runs through all those experiences that makes you a better citizen in the polis. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Nancy Cantor is an esteemed social psychologist, and she's widely recognized for helping forge a new understanding of the role of universities in society that re-emphasizes their public mission. Christopher Howard is one of the youngest college presidents in the U.S., a distinguished graduate of the Air Force Academy and a former Rhodes Scholar with an MBA from Harvard. I spoke with them as part of our Civil Conversations Project before an audience at the American Council on Education's 97th Annual Meeting in Washington, D.C. The notion that we collectively are in the midst of an adventure of recreating common life, public life, the meaning of citizen and leadership is a theme that runs throughout my life of conversation on radio. And I've been fascinated in recent years as I've experienced diverse interlocutors reclaiming the language and practice of the citizen scientist, the citizen artist, the language of public theology, just for example. So it was exciting as I prepared to be here today to get a glimpse of how you and your institutions are exploring anew the nature of education and civic formation of education for leadership in civil society amidst 21st century realities. I want to say just a few words before we plunge into this conversation about the limits I've observed just in the language around this challenge. The fact that we seem to need to reinvent our vocabulary alongside our imaginations. I also always rush to add qualifiers when I use the word civility. Um, Because I think it's made ineffectual by connotations of niceness and politeness. And I hear echoes of this in both of your writing as well. The critical place of our educational institutions in this work is undeniable. And I'm just delighted to be up here in conversation with Nancy Cantor and Christopher Howard. So Nancy, you grew up 
with a love of dancing. I did. And you went to Sarah Lawrence College. You landed there in 1970. And from a civic life perspective, I think 1970 was an interesting time to land on any American campus. So what I want to ask each of you, I'll just start with you, is um, if you could tell us a little bit about the earliest roots. You know, how do you trace the earliest roots, the formative experiences of your passion, and I want to expansively define this as personal and spiritual as well as intellectual, um, your passion for the intersection of education and civic slash public slash common good. So I actually, for me, would trace it back to growing up in New York City. I took the subway 45 minutes every day back and forth to school. That was an education in public life. (laughs) (laughs) And this was, as you pointed out, during a period of women's movement, anti-war movement, and the civil rights movement. I came from a very socially active family. Those issues were on the table. And we were very involved in the arts. And the arts is, is a venue always for bringing together extraordinary diversity and extraordinary public life. So I had when you were talking about civility and really injecting it with something more than being nice, for me, you know, all you have to do is remember New York City subways and you know that what public life or civility is about is really not a sugar-coated, laid-back, In the thick of it. In the thick of it, exactly. I mean, so when I think of education, I just think of it as it's got to be in the world. It's got to have that messiness. And we shouldn't be scared of that messiness. So I, I very much resonate to the notion that civility is not about covering up pasting over whatever the metaphors in our world that, you know, I I think it's so ironic that we live in this world of tremendous turmoil and difference and conflict, and we gravitate towards concepts that are covering things. Yeah, or just not big enough. Or just not big enough, but... I'd say covering. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Chris, let me... You, um... Uh, there's so much that jumps out at me in your story, which is remarkable. I mean, it's very stunning, and you, you say it this way often, that your great-great-grandfather was considered to be property, and that you are now president of a college, and president of a college that was originally created on a plantation. Um, so this question to you also, again, how would you trace the roots of your passion, personal, spiritual, as well as intellectual, for this intersection we're talking about here today. Sure, because I'm, I'm delighted to answer the question and to be a part of this panel, especially with one of my heroes here. But I, Chris, I, I think about the opportunities I've been honored to have and have been given. I take that extraordinarily serious to be, as you said before, five generations removed from a slave from a chattel. I often say that uh, my great-great-grandfather was no different than the seats you're sitting on now. 
that, that has informed my life coming up as a young person in Texas with parents who grew up working as sharecroppers in the summer because you know black people couldn't get jobs working at a record store or a soda shop at that day and age. Um, my father was a veteran of the Vietnam War. My uncle did two tours. They're both combat veterans, my Bronze Star recipient. And so I saw that there, those uniforms in my closet as a kid. And then uh, I saw a picture of a West Point cadet when I was in seventh grade, going back to the formative years in your life. So here I'm in Plano, Texas. I see a picture of a West Point cadet, and I said, I'm going to be a West Pointer, which is, a, you know, I'm thinking about the public sphere as public service, as in military service. That's how I came into this. But I wrote a letter to my congressman. I said, I'm Chris Howard. I'm a good student. I'm a good athlete. You need to give me an appointment to West Point when I turn 18. He says, you seem like a bright young man, but I'm not your congressman. <laughs> So I'd written the letter to the wrong person, but he forwarded it. He said, this guy has hope. He can't figure out the address. But I... So I ended up going to the United States Air Force Academy rather than West Point. And um, not because I wrote the letter to the wrong place. It just worked out better that way. But I was always thinking, one to whom much is given, much is also expected. And I think about, I think about the public sector and citizenry and uh, that whole rubric in terms of what is the obligation that I have, that my family has, that my town has, that we as a society have, to ensure that we can have a civilization, that we can have a society. Okay. So Nancy, I think um, you offered an interesting frame for where we are now. Um, There's an association of, for psychological science profile of you, and, and they talked about how you're revered in that field for your work on how we perceive our social environments, pursue goals, and adapt to changing and challenging social settings. And I, I think certainly the language of changing and challenging social settings applies to the field of education, as it does to many of our fields right now. Um, you've also said, along those lines, pardon me if, as a psychologist, I say that an existential identity crisis, and you're talking about an existential identity crisis for education, um, every so often isn't such a bad thing for growth and creativity. <laughs> The Sarah Lawrence girl. In okay, <laughs> so, right. right. I mean, I, I do think that, that it's, it's in, instinctive a lot of times to fret about what is difficult and needs fixing and is falling apart and needs reconstructing, and we don't know how to do that. But I like, I like that positive framing of the existential identity crisis that forces us to creativity. Absolutely. So, so I think one of the things that we gravitate to too quickly is really the status quo in, in all its richness. I mean, that is, we have norms and traditions and tasks and cultures and ways of being that are useful. They're adapted. They let us do things by default. But the fact of the matter is default doesn't always work, right? And default doesn't always bring everybody to the table. So, you know, maybe again it goes back to the period I grew up in, but it was a period of churning that really put things on, on their heads. I mean, mm-hmm. so the Freedom Rides really were a way of saying, at least as a, when I was growing up, it was a way of saying, stop and look and change. When I think of social psychology, I think of people's ability to adapt, not by accepting, but by pushing back, 
by a tug of war mm -hmm. between individuals and environments, between groups. It's not a placid sort of way of taking things. And if education means anything, it means to cultivate intelligence, to cultivate a social cohesion and a social spirit, to cultivate that civility you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So to do that, you have to have an active stance to the world. And that's the existential crisis in it. Questioning is, of course, at the heart of education. It's at the heart of learning. But it's not just questioning because you can have the, the answer. It's questioning itself as a process mm -hmm. is good good for us. Mm -hmm. And we got a lot of questioning to do right now Very in the world. Because so. yeah, so yeah. when mm -hmm. I was teaching at the University of Oklahoma in Honors College, we had, I like to say it was a great books class, but it was more great paragraphs. We didn't read the whole <laughs> book we read, but we read really important paragraphs. <laughs> right. and, but we wrestled with some great, the great conversation of civilization, and we really put it in, the, I love your word, churn. It was a blender, it was a beating up of ideas, and we had people coming from all different political backgrounds in a very intimate learning environment, a very liberal education experience on a public university campus, and we questioned what we valued, and we respected each other, and it was a very, very civil place for us to disagree. And so, to your point, I just wanted to just to indemnify and support your point to saying that the classroom the, 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 the institutions of higher learning have a, a unique opportunity to do what you just described. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and this may seem like a simple point, but I, you know, sometimes it's worth saying the simplest things. Our educational institutions are the places in the society where we learn to ask good questions, right? where we cultivate that particular right. skill. But I guess one thing I would push back on that is that when we say that, we often think of the classroom in a cloistered sense, right? You know that you have to step back from the world to ask good questions, to be able to do the civil conversation mm -hmm. we're talking about. I think the real task right now is to do that in the world, right? So that the classroom becomes the world, the world becomes the classroom. I mean, and that sounds so right. Cliche, no, but, but I, guess, I guess what mm -hmm. I'm saying is also to, but to send students out into the world who are good askers Absolutely. of better questions. But send students out when they're still students. Okay. Is what I'm saying. Uh-huh. We had a board meeting recently and I had a, uh, a, a, a board member say something about our athletic program and he said that basically a lot of the learning that in student life can happen in the athletic program when done properly. It doesn't, to your point, Nancy, have to be in the wonderful wood-paneled cloistered room. Uh, things and the, and the tools out there that, that weren't as evident, at least even when I was a, a student at the Air Force Academy in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, experiential learning, service learning. Yeah. They've been around, but I think they're much right. more a part of our vernacular. I, I'll add one other piece. What you're hearing now about um, getting it right in student life, which is a proxy for the real world, which is a proxy for a civilization, um, is this thing about uh, upstander versus bystander, right? So how do you get someone to... What did you say, upstander? Upstander as opposed to being a bystander. Right. It's kind of intuitive, right? So, but, but a lot of times things are happening on a campus, and it's not that, you, you th that a student thinks it's the right thing, but how can he or she actually be an upstander and try to 
you know, address it, to be in the world, to, to bring those values of the civilization right there in the dorm room in the fraternity house or what have you. Um, but that's something that's relatively new and can, can be just as powerful as what you're learning in that calculus class or in that political science class. Right. And, 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 and actually, to tell the truth, there's a seamless web when done properly that runs through all those experiences that makes you a better citizen in the polis. Exactly. Mm -hmm. so and, and, you know, we have to teach ourselves and our students that we're real people. Mm. We forget that. You know? Well, well, we and also human. there's a line in the academy. It's hard, right? There's a boundary that there has is. prevailed, and that's and we got to push against that mm -hmm. boundary. Mm -hmm. Again, it's it's about the status quo. Do you take yeah. that boundary as a given, or do you mm -hmm. say we're in a seamless relationship in the world? Right. We have a phrase in Newark of saying that anchor institutions, universities as anchor institutions, are not just in their community, they're of their community. Right. So my favorite quote on that, and, and it's very much what Chris is saying, was from Rabbi Yochum Prince, who gave the speech right before Martin Luther King Jr. In, at the March on Washington. It was a great um, rabbi in Newark at the time, and he said, look, being a neighbor is not just a term. It's not a geographic term. It's a moral concept. What does that mean when we think about education? Mm -hmm. What if we really thought that being of a community, not just happenstancely located in the community, was a moral construct about collective responsibility? It wasn't just that you happened to be there geographically. It was that you were interdependent with community. Uh -huh. I mean, when we talk about issues of race or ethnicity or class or gender, sexuality on campuses and how hard it is to adjudicate that conflict, why do we always think about doing it in and of ourselves? Why don't we do it? in community and of community so that we can see the different faces of these issues. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in a live civil conversation on higher education and civil society. I'm with Rutgers University Newark Chancellor Nancy Cantor and Christopher Howard, the president of Hamden Sydney College of Virginia. Chris, I want to talk a little bit. You, I mean, you are in such an interesting place from which to to be observing and participating in this. Um, this. The slogan of your college is forming good men and good citizens since 1776. That's exactly right. <laughs> Which you can't beat. Um, but what an interesting perspective you have as the first African-American president of an all-male school and an all-male school that is predominantly white. Yes. And in some ways, even the all-male part of it feels as old-fashioned as anything else. So talk to us about what you're learning and, and also how, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is a wonderful opportunity. It is a, an extraordinarily American place. Mm -hmm. 
it has literally, it was November, you, you took a year off. November 11th, 1775 was when the first classes were offered at Hampton Sydney College. And it has traced the arc and trajectory of American history because it's been there during the American Revolution. We had two or three students that perished in the American Revolution because the school is actually older than America. Uh, and it's gone all the way through the Civil War and both the World Wars and the Civil Rights Movement. And then to have a president who happens to look like me leading a place that happens to be predominantly white, it didn't. It's sort of the arc of, of progress. And Dr. King's, you know, the arc of history pins the word justice. And I guess I'm justice. I guess just call me justice. But, <laughs> but that's but, kind of a big responsibility. That's a very big responsibility. But but nonetheless, that that is a it's a beautiful thing about America because you know I didn't choose myself. You know, the, the wonderful ladies and gentlemen on the board who uh, are coming from primarily a very southern tradition saw this as an opportunity. So that, I, I love that aspect. I just now, want to say that they they you were. The ceremony took place at the Commonwealth Club in Richmond, Virginia, a club which for most of its history had only admitted whites, and you're standing before a portrait of Jefferson Davis. Yes, and a, and a, and a board member said, Dr. Howard, you do know you're standing in front of a picture of Jefferson Davis as you accept the presidency of Hampton Sydney College. I go, it's okay. I said hello to Robert E. Lee on the way in, so it's, <laughs> it's not a problem for me. But, but that's, I mean, that's who we are. I mean, you're talking about, it's not well, easy, Nancy. and the Nancy, fact that up. they chose you says something about who they are and who they want to be as well. I, I think so. I think so. And uh, again, I, I, I'm such a humble part of this whole thing that is America. I mean, it, it's sort of a cliche, Krista, but I, I love this cliche that, that, you know, we talked about my origins, the origins of the institution, and that we can remake ourselves and redo ourselves and, and have these existential crises that, that Nancy has pointed out. You know, so much of your life is dictated by your zip code. And, and what kind of society or citizenry or civilization can we have if you can just say, you come from this zip code, ergo your life is going to end up at name the top institution, name the top job or whatever, perceived job, what have you. What does that mean for those that are not in? So, and I like what Nancy said, she's coming from a, you know, from a public university, I'm coming from a private institution. We have common cause here. You talk about the commonplace, the commons, I love yeah. those terms. Yeah. We have common cause here because if we don't do it right, if we don't extend ourselves, if we don't get uncomfortable, it's not gonna change. Mm -hmm. It's never gonna get better. So would you say a little, I, I just have to say, I, as we're speaking out, I'm really curious about what you're all thinking and what you'd like to ask. So we'll, we'll just talk for a few more minutes up here and then we'll open it up. I wonder if before we do that, if you would both say a little bit about what you're involved in in your institution, how you're able, being able to uh, apply this vision in your very different contexts. So why don't you start, Chris? You were, oh, sure, I'm happy to. So, Again, we, we, we have um, the luxury of being sort of older than America. <laughs> and we have a lot of the luminaries of the American. Burden or the the burden and the luxury, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's like the president of William and Mary once said, Taylor Reebley, who's, whose father went, ran Hampton Sydney uh, and actually segregated, uh, integrated, excuse me, but he'd say the best thing about William and Mary is they're like, you know, 400 years old. The worst thing about William and Mary is that they're 400 years old. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. you know, that goes. Right. But, uh, but we, we, we have a, 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 an institute uh, center at, at Hampton Sydney College called the Wilson Center for Leadership in the Public Interest. Yeah, I noticed that, yeah. This is interesting, Kristen. Yeah. So leadership in the public interest. And, and this guy, Sam Wilson, was a guy who, at age 16, when Churchill gave his famous speech to, to the call to arms for Britain, this guy walked 
10 miles, you can't make this stuff up, walked 10 miles or 12 miles and lied about his age, volunteered for the National Guard, ended up being the youngest Army officer in World War II, was one of Merrill's marauders, went all the way up and became a three-star general. He never went to college. He came back and became the president of mm -hmm. Hampton City College because mm -hmm. he's from Rice, right down the road. And he pushed for this thing about leadership and citizenry. It's one of our most popular centers, and it, it is the embodiment of a lot of things you're talking about, where we do experiential learning, service learning, courses that uh, touch on constitutional law, along with our government and foreign affairs department. And it's just our ROTC programs there. Oh, yeah, so gonna, the, yeah. the college is pr um, predominantly so like 93% white. No, it was. It's about, was. It, when I showed up, it was about 20% non-white male now. It was really? about 7% when I arrived. You've also talked about, you know, Hampton-Sydney at, at one point was known as a finishing school for Southern gentlemen. But you, I really like the way you talk about the word gentleman. You say the operative word is gentleman. Would you talk a little bit about how you, what that means for you and how you're implementing that as part of culture? Yeah, sure. And I'll talk a little bit probably about humility as well. But uh, so... The term gentleman is problematic amongst uh, many people. It conjures up something that sounds very old-fashioned. Yeah. And uh, you feel like you should have a, you know, a glass of lemonade and a big, long, wide bid. And, you know, it just doesn't quite fly, especially a lot with my faculty members. But this whole idea of a gentleman, which means that you don't intentionally do something to harm others. So to walk through life and not intentionally do harm to others is pretty cool. And I, and I think that young men, they can get their minds around that. And so I, I, I like that. And, and the whole idea is that we have these terms that have been around for a long time. How do we come up with a 3.0 or 4.0 version of them? Uh, they're gonna st some of these things, they should stay in our vernacular. Some of them should be thrown away right, right. You know, a long time ago. But some of these things can just be upgraded, up updated and upgraded. And I like doing that with our folks on our campus. And, and, um, and again, the thing about humility, my last point about humility is... Um, as I talk to my students and, and to my two sons, I'll say things like, you know, I have been 20, you have never been 46. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've seen some stuff that you haven't seen. So when we take our respective roles as chancellors and, and presidents, as parents, as citizens, we got to be humble because there's so much that we just don't know, a law of unintended consequences, et cetera. And so I, I think that's a good virtue, I guess, for us to live by in, in, in this wonderful world we live in together. Mm -hmm. Nancy, I wonder if you would just talk a little bit about the, the work you did in Syracuse, um, which I think you're you know, building that and kind of taking what you learned there to Newark, but um, very much kind of a, a, a very serious, in-depth, multi-year project in really giving legs to this idea about connecting the educational institution to the world around it. I don't actually like the word service learning because it connotes a kind of one-way street of altruism as opposed to a genuine collaborative relationship and engagement. But the key phrase is humility. And let's face it, universities are not great at being humble, right? This does not come naturally to us. And what we took as principles in Syracuse, and we definitely take in Newark, although every place is its own, and so we do the work differently, is that our role was to be a collaborator with a community of experts some with pedigree and some not. I learned more from the wisest grandmother in the ninth poorest census tract in the near west side of Syracuse 
when she said, Nancy, ask us. We lay our head down here at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my question was, how did you, what was the structure by which you created a relationship so that you were listening to her and she could speak her truth to you? Yes. So what we did is we created in Syracuse, in the near west side of Syracuse, a 501c3 through which everything flowed. So it was heavily dominated by residents, by the local parish priest, who was the best activist on the face of the earth, by business people, by local government, by deans and faculty and students and artists and residents, residents, residents. They had control. It was democracy in action. It was incredibly messy. What was the 501c3 called? It was called the Near West Side Initiative or the SALT District for Syracuse Arts, Literacy, and Technology District, a playback to Syracuse having been a SALT industry center. The key thing for sustenance and sustaining this work is that we are one of many communities of experts. We are on the ground, one among many. I really believe that the best thing universities can do is create third spaces of collaboration for our students, for our faculty, for our staff, and most importantly, for our citizens, and for everybody around us. Places where people genuinely come without pedigree, even with pedigree. And that is not easy, and that goes back to humility. You can listen again and share this conversation with Nancy Cantor and Christopher Howard through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're exploring the evolving place of institutions of higher education in the communities they inhabit and in nurturing their students as citizens and leaders for the emerging 21st century world. I'm with two visionary college presidents of two very different colleges. Christopher Howard is the first African-American president of an historically white, all-male school in the South, Hampton-Sydney College of Virginia. Nancy Cantor is chancellor of a large public university in the Northeast, Rutgers University, Newark, one of the most diverse institutions in the U.S. And we're with a live audience at the American Council on Education's 97th annual meeting in Washington, D.C. All right, well, let's open this up. Um, Here's a microphone. Thank you. Kevin Snyder from Penn State, New Kensington. You know, in many societies, some of the societal shifts in civil society come from students. It's almost kind of ground up. And in here, if there's a generation of students that ought to be voicing and questioning, back to your original uh, opening statement there, you'd think it'd be this generation, where wages are stagnant, the amount that the public is investing in their education is going down drastically and putting a burden on their backs, the benefits they can enjoy uh, when they graduate and get jobs uh, are going to be dramatically reduced. Um, it just seems like they, they should be 
rising up more than they are, uh, voting, uh, demonstrating, things like that. And so sometimes when I talk to these students, there's almost a sense of not even being interested. And I'm wondering if we're doing something wrong. And I'm wondering if you might have some ideas about what's happening here and what our role should be uh, in this environment. So, so to me, there's sort of two pieces to that. One is, if we're doing something wrong, it goes back to, ironically, in my view, the narrow careerism of our, of our approach. So we, we operate from the notion that jobs are hard to get, and therefore, what that then seems to equal is that education has to be narrower and narrower to be better for those jobs, when in fact, what we know, and surveys of corporate leaders all over the country and the world say this, is that education actually has to be broader and broader to incite and excite the next diverse generation who will in fact turn things around. We know that innovation comes from diversity, and yet we don't spend the time getting that mix of perspectives that would get the excitement going that you're talking about. The other quick thing I would say, and then turn to Chris, is, is that actually I think our students are deeply engaged in the world and want to be. I just think we have to value it. It's often the faculty and the administration that are pulling back and narrowing the sights of those students. Hmm. I think that, to your point, Nancy, you see uh, hyper-engagement. But the thing is, they engage differently than we did. There was an article right. in The Economist a couple issues ago that said the death of the protest. You know, um, even the Wall Street uh, thing a couple years ago, it's just, it's not like it was in the 60s and 70s. You think about the Selma March, you've been mentioning the Freedom Buses and what have you, Freedom Riders, yeah, excuse yeah. me. That is not the way it's going down now, even though, as the gentleman pointed out, society, young people may feel sort of similar type pressures on them. So we have to indemnify, expect, and respect that they're going about it differently. I'll make one final point on this. The idea of the citizen sector, Peter Drucker talked about the citizen sector, the proliferation of the 501c3s. First of all, that's a unique thing in America, mm -hmm. that you can pretty much hang your shingle and say, and as long as you convince the IRS and the Secretary of State in your state, I'm going to hang my shingle and I'm going to go after that problem. The number of young people that found 501c3s, exactly. now probably it's because of technology. It's really exactly. a really fascinating point. Yeah, yeah, the, it's exactly. a very different form that this is taking. Right. Yes. Yeah. But it, it's just as vibrant. It is vibrant, and it makes sense for their generation and how right. they do things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I've sat on the selection committee for the Rhodes Scholarship a couple of times, and it's kind of surprising when kids don't, when they haven't started a 501c3, right. and when they have started a 501c3. Right. Yeah. You know, how old are you again? 15? Yeah. Really? Right. When did you start this thing? So I just think right. that, that they're, they're doing it differently, mm. um, and so we need to respect that and indemnify that and, uh, and support it. Mm -hmm. Down here. In an age of evidence, what are the metrics around civic engagement that we as leaders can take back out into our communities to talk about success and to talk about and to motivate our students to take this as part of their um, repertoire into the future because they've experienced the transformation of any particular problem by virtue of applying to it? 
So it's not only about the, the money-making opportunities. It's about that satisfaction level. And it's about measuring it for communities so that, once again, as we start to answer the question and compile the metrics around why a college education, why especially a residential college education, um, how do we make our case for adding to that civic engagement in, in a large and very diverse way? So one of the things that I've been doing with young people as I've entered even as a mentor when I was in industry and in the military nonprofit and now as an educator is that I want them to have a sense of agency. And you could probably distill in some metrics, but I'm going to be a little bit more sort of spiritual about it. So when people on our campus, students on our campus want to do something, I like to make, their, make sure that our administration, our faculty, our alumni help them do that, because I want them to know that if they do A, and it's not against the law, <laughs> that B can happen, <laughs> right? And I think in terms of civic engagement, stepping into your community, you want people in a school system that's not working well to run for school board or to do something to affect change in that school system when they've graduated from the institution to make a difference. You want them, you can, you want them to do the same thing with a, uh, maybe a corporation is, is misappropriating uh, land or something like that. You want them to be able to say, I can do something about this. Or even inside the firm themselves, they can be working for a company and say, I want to, this is not right, and I, not out of hubris, but out of responsibility, make a change. And that's agency. Agency, agency, agency. And, and, and getting that in a more macro level or making sure that we, as a society, are marching in the right direction and knowing that we're having progress, um, probably people that are better at that than I am. But I do know that in my gut, that that's what, what I want. I want men and women to walk off a campus and be able to know that if they do A, they can have B happen and they can have some input and control. Because a lot of places in the world, people just don't have that. Mm -hmm. They simply do not have any sense of agency and they think they don't think they're ever going to get it. I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being. Today in a live civil conversation on higher education and civil society. I'm with Rutgers University Newark Chancellor Nancy Cantor and Christopher Howard, the president of Hamden Sydney College of Virginia. One more question? Here's one. Michael Galligan-Sterl, President of the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, about 200 universities, a million students around the country. In the short description, uh, the sentence read, a robust civility to bridge rather than deepen differences. When you look at higher education, what is one experience or model on a university campus that you've seen where you actually have robust civility conversation that helps this generation understand how to build bridges instead of dividing. What does it physically look like in your experience? So I'll give you two. <laughs> I always go back to the arts um, as a fundamental 
bridge of, of civil communication that levels the playing field like nothing else, and very quickly. So in Syracuse, we did a project on literacy and photography, again, in that same neighborhood I was talking about, a multi-generational project. And the narrative making and the voice that came forth from all directions, not to mention the extraordinarily beautiful photography and poetry that was written by kids who are otherwise written off by higher education in communities that don't get noticed that often. And the integration of Syracuse University students with these kids was an absolute slam dunk leveler and builder of civic bridges. The second thing I would say is a more formal, typical, if you will, but incredibly important notion of intergroup dialogue. Pat Gurn's work at Michigan that has been done on many campuses around the country is extraordinary, structured intergroup dialogue led by very, very trained facilitators, where vulnerabilities get brought to the table on all sides unexpectedly. And it's those vulnerabilities, once expressed, that actually create the civic bridge. That's a wonderful phrase, the civic bridge, also. That's, mm -hmm. That's a 501c3 waiting to happen right there. <laughs> That's right. The civic is. Bridge. Heard it That's first here. <laughs> civic Bridge. So uh, I, I would piggyback on what Nancy said in terms of the, the dialogue piece. And so this is borrowing a note from the faith side. We're a Presbyterian uh, university or college, at least our, those are our roots. And so this comes from um, uh, a concept that might be near and near to you as someone who's coming from uh, faith-based uh, colleges and universities. And this is vocational reflection or discernment, what am I called to be? And so we have a sophomore vocational reflection project. In the last couple of years, from day one, we've been asking our students, uh, literally the first talk I give to them, what is your purpose, passion, and calling in life? And the answer is, I'm clueless, I say join the club. <laughs> you know. And we've been kind of creating exercises and programs that are culminating in their sophomore year where they have a sophomore reflection dialogue around the table with a trained moderator, a faculty or staff member. And we also lay on top of the purpose, passion, and calling in life. What does it mean to be a good man or good men, actually, in 2015? So this is where the being an all-male institution plays to an advantage because you're able to get to a point of vulnerability pretty quickly. So we did this, I think the first time we did it, um, we had dinner at my, a group of sophomores had dinner at my house, and I was at my, our table, there were about 10 students around the table and had dinner. And we went around and I said, who are you? And one kid said, I'm weird. <laughs> and another kid said that I want to be Pericles. I want to bring truth to the people. And went around, one kid talked about wanting to be there for others. And as the dialogue progressed, one of the young men talked about his life and coming up in very horrific circumstances. In Appalachia, America, foster care when his parents died, a sibling who killed herself, Drug addiction. I almost want to cry talking about it. So these young men who didn't know each other terribly well, it was randomly generated, they, they're in the same class for all sophomores, 
were creating this civic and civil bridge with their own personal experiences and points of honorability, just talking around a table over pizza, right? And then we come up with other programs to keep that going, but by the end, they were all cheering for each other to be successful. Hey, you know, it's okay that you're weird. And it's okay that you've gone through this, and it's great that you want to be Pericles, and I know what you mean by that. And so that was a very powerful part, and it, it speaks to your dialogue piece, and it's, it's very, very useful. Thank you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm in radio, so I really, I know what a hard stop is, and it's a hard stop, but I, I'm just <laughs> going to ask one more quick question. I, before I do that, I want to I say that um, another way I think we diminish the notion of civil discourse is we, we, we tend to invoke and call for it when things have gotten really bad and when there's a fight. And I think that you know, robust civil discourse is also about putting words, putting generative, uh, imagination-opening words around things we don't even quite know how to talk about yet. And there are so many of those right now. And I feel like so many things surfaced in this conversation uh, that I, I hadn't heard before. And I, I, too, again feel like maybe part of the task is to you know, what, the story you just told, Chris, or your story, Nancy, about uh, creating an experience where people can be vulnerable, these things have civic effect, and they shape our capacity to be in the world effectively. And somehow, I think part of the task is to create that metric-sounding language that can put these things on a different platform. Um, so I want to thank you for this. Uh, I guess my, just very finally, very quickly, um, and you know, in my in my show, I'll often ask at the end, you know, through all the experiences you've had and what we've been talking about, how have you? How has your sense of what it means to be human evolved? And with this conversation in mind that we've just had about education and humanity and connecting who we are and who the world is, both institutionally and personally, you know, how would you answer that question? What you've learned about, you know, what it means to be an educated human being. So, I think what I would say is what I've learned is to look beneath the surface. That we are so quick to assume we understand what's there and not to really look for what can be there and that education is about what can be there. Education is a lifelong process. This is, not, this is a, a film, not a snapshot. So when I was in flight school as, a, as an Air Force uh, officer, I had a, a classmate named Mark and his wife was Kathy. He was an Army Reservist. I was an Air Force officer. We were going to Fort Rucker, helicopter training. And we would have these long talks about the Civil War and what it meant to society in America and, and, and the role of the Confederacy in our history. And he had had relatives that had fought what I like to call the losing side. <laughs> I'm just saying they did lose. <laughs> Point of fact, some of my friends forget that, but nonetheless. But, but we had this very, and, I, and I'm a mil, trained military guy, and so I, I knew the stories of the Confederate generals and, and understood where he was coming from. We'd have these great conversations. Uh, and then when we finish up, Flight school, my wife and our, uh, we only had one son at the time, went down to Disney World. We got some pretty cheap tickets off uh, the Morale Welfare and Recreation Office at Fort Rucker. We drive down to, to Tampa to stay with him because we're going to go to Disney World in Orlando the next day. So we show up with our four-year-old son, my wife being a, a colored 
so-called colored, from South Africa, who grew up in apartheid South Africa, by the way. We knock on the door, Kathy's there, she opens the door, Mark's there, we give them a hug. He's also a state trooper. We talk for a few minutes, it's rather late, we go into their bedroom, and on his bed, there was a, a couple of pillows, and they were Confederate flag pillows. They were with the Confederate flag. And this is interesting. <laughs> he takes the pillows, and he puts them in a, in a chest, and his wife, and they make the bed for us, because it was a small apartment, and we stayed in their bed. They stayed somewhere else. It wasn't that kind of story. They stayed someplace else. But what was interesting is that I thought that that is the best of a civil relationship, right, in so many ways. I know some of you are laughing trying to get your mind around this, but think about it, though. He did not run and hide that. We talked about what it meant to him. I understood that, and I respected that. I didn't, you know, a lot of people, it, it would have turned out very differently if a lot of other people of color had showed up at the door. Um, but it was not that. It was us. It was, it was, it was Mark and, and, and Kathy and Barbara and Chris and Cohen, and we knew each other, and we, we took time to respect our respective points of view, which allowed us to have a deep relationship. And so that, that's the story that I use. It kind of speaks to some of the things you're speaking to. And uh, so... It's about it. living with. Living with. Mm-hmm. Living with. Thank you, Chris and Nancy, and thank you all for coming. Nancy Cantor is the Chancellor of Rutgers University, Newark. Chris Howard is President of Hampton Sydney College of Virginia. note of remembrance this week. Grace Lee Boggs died on October 5th at the age of 100. The daughter of Chinese immigrants, she was a philosopher, a social visionary, a civil rights legend. In recent years, she became a force for renewal against the odds in post-industrial Detroit. She said, our right, our duty, is to shape the world with a new dream, to rebuild, redefine, and re-spirit our city. We visited Grace Lee Boggs in 2011 at her home in Detroit, and you can hear that conversation on our website, onbeing.org. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Nikki Oster, Michelle Keeley, Maya Terrell, Annie Parsons, Tony Berleffi, Marie Sambale, and Hannah Rehack. Special thanks this week to Louis Suarez, Nicole Woods, and the rest of the staff at the American Council on Education. Our major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Fetzer Institute, fostering awareness of the power of love and forgiveness to transform our world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of a new initiative, Public Theology Reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.